Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good morning, and welcome to the second event in our Preserve the Constitution series, Slavery and the Constitution. We're thrilled to have you with us today. Before our program begins, we'd like to share some tips for optimizing your experience. First, we'll be sharing the recording of today's program with you following the event. So if you want to watch it again, share it with a friend or jot something down from the slides, you'll have the recording to do so. Next, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Please submit your questions throughout the event in the questions box on your screen. Be sure to tell us your name, affiliation, or where you're, where you're tuning in from. We'll get to as many of your questions as possible later on. Finally, your microphone is muted for this event. We hope you enjoy the program. The Constitution of the United States of America has endured for over two centuries. It remains the object of reverence for nearly all Americans and an object of admiration by peoples around the world. Not only is it the world's oldest national constitution still in use, it is also the shortest constitution, and therein lies its brilliance. Rather than concoct a detailed recipe covering every possible eventuality, the founders instead provided a structure and articulated a set of stable principles that provide a timeless guide for good governance that is enduring and worth preserving. This fall will mark the 11th year the Heritage Foundation has hosted our Preserve the Constitution series. By informing citizens on topics related to the Constitution and the rule of law, this annual lecture series seeks to restore the courts to their proper constitutional role and to enforce constitutional limits on government. Live events throughout September, October, and November will bring together leading voices in law and policy to give a reasoned defense for liberty. Previous events have not shied away from the big legal issues of the day, debating topics ranging from the state of the free press to the rise of the surveillance state to attacks on religious liberty. Past speakers have included some of the nation's most respected judges and legal scholars, including Justices Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh, former attorneys general Michael Mukasey, John Ashcroft, and Ed Meese, and a number of senators and congressmen. We at Heritage feel it is very important for the citizenry to have an understanding of and allegiance to the Constitution of the United States. We are pleased that you were able to join us for our event today and what promises to be an engaging discussion. Following the program, we hope you will visit our website, heritage.org ptc2020, to sign up for and view additional events in our series. And now, we turn it over to our Heritage colleague to begin today's live program. Good morning. My name is Angela Saylor, and I am the Vice President of the Fulner Institute here at the Heritage Foundation. On behalf of our President, Kay Coles-James, and my colleague, John Malcolm, Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government and Director of the Mies Center for Legal and Ju Judicial Studies, welcome to the Heritage Foundation's Preserve the Constitution series. Today's event is called Slavery and the Constitution. The question of the hour is whether the Constitution is pro-slavery or anti-slavery. History has shown us that great leaders 
and reasonable men and women have changed their viewpoints on this question. Frederick Douglass, the foremost black abolitionist in the 1840s, called the Constitution a radically and essentially pro-slavery document. But by, eight, by the 1850s, Douglass changed his mind, concluding the Constitution, when construed in light of well-established rules of legal interpretation, is a glorious liberty document. As we war over America's heart and soul, many are asking what convinced Douglass to change his viewpoint? Some declare it was what the framers had hoped would preserve a legacy of freedom for generations to come, silence. Douglas asked if the Constitution were intended to be by its framers and adopters a slave-holding instrument, then why would neither slavery, slave-holding, nor slave be anywhere found in it? But that is not the focus of those who challenge the integrity of the Constitution. Some who challenge the integrity of the Constitution say it is weakened by the existence of slavery in the United States at the time the Constitution was adopted. Slaveholders took part in the framing of the Constitution, and they say slaveholders in their hearts intended to secure certain advantages in that instrument for slavery. As Americans, e pluribus unum, how do we move forward and bolster the present day opportunity to live as free men. Today, we have invited you here to participate in a thoughtful discussion with leading historians and leading scholars about one of the most divisive issues being debated in our nation today. I challenge you to step back and view the opportunity to debate the Constitution as a pro-slavery or anti-slavery document as a pathway toward reducing racial tension and creating a platform for resolution. I challenge you to step forward and transform the debate into action, action that promotes the American identity and celebrates the benefits granted to citizens of the freest nation the world has ever known. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my colleague, Paul Larkin, who will moderate today's panel. Paul is the John, Barbara, and Victoria Rumpel Senior Legal Research Fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Paul works on criminal justice policy, drug policy, and regulatory policy. Before joining Heritage, Paul held various positions with the federal government in Washington, D.C. At the U.S. Department of Justice, Paul served as an assistant to the Solicitor General and argued 27 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He was also an attorney in the criminal division's organized crime and racketeering section. Paul received his law degree from Stanford Law School, where he was a published member of the Stanford Law Review. He clerked for Judge Robert Bork of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and he received his master's degree in public policy from George Washington University. He also holds a bachelor's of arts degree in philosophy from Washington Lee University in Lexington, Virginia, where of course he graduated summa cum laude with honors in philosophy. Ladies and gentlemen, my colleague, Paul Larkin. Angela, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And thank you to our audience 
you have numerous demands on your time and numerous opportunities how you will spend it. On behalf of Heritage and myself, I want to thank you for taking part of your day to listen to a discussion uh, in which we have several scholars in legal uh, subjects and history who will address the issue of slavery and the Constitution. What made this a contemporary issue was that from the day the New York Times Magazine published the 1619 Project a year ago, the opinions expressed in that work touched nerves in American historical and political scholarship as well as in American life. The thesis of the 1619 Project was that the true beginning of American history was not 1776, when America declared its independence from England, but was in 1619, when the first African slaves arrived in America at Jamestown. The project also claimed that whatever enduring benefits the nation has seen and has granted to the world are attributable to the nation's slave-owning past. Well, the 1619 Project was correct to condemn slavery, particularly on one of its anniversaries. Slavery is a despicable institution, and no one is sorry that the 13th Amendment ended it after the Civil War. But the 1619 Project is not a work of historical scholarship. Numerous historians have objected to the project on the ground that it contains an erroneous view of history. And a large number of Americans have objected to it on the ground that it was leftist political agitprop. With us today are several well-known scholars who will discuss one aspect of that debate. What did the Constitution say about slavery before the 13th Amendment became law? Did the Constitution protect the rights of slaveholders? Or did the Constitution forbid slavery? Or did the Constitution avoid taking either of those positions and left the matter entirely to the political process. Our first speaker today will be Timothy Sandifer. He is vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute, where he oversees the Institute's legal staff and holds the Clarence J. and Catherine P. Duncan Chair in Constitutional Government. He has litigated important cases involving individual liberty, private property, and constitutional law, he is the author of six books, as well as dozens of scholarly articles on various different topics, including one on Star Trek. Following Timothy will be Professor Alan Guelzo. He is a visiting fellow in the Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation, a senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University, and director of the James Madison Programs Institute to the Initiative in Politics and Statesmanship. Professor Guelzo is an acclaimed scholar of American history whose writings have been recognized as having made important contributions to scholarly and public understanding of 19th century America. A winner of the 2018 Bradley Prize, he earned his PhD in history from the University of Pennsylvania. He also holds an honorary doctorate of history from Lincoln College. Up next will be Professor Sean Wilentz. He is the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, where he teaches both political and social American history. He received his PhD in history from Yale University after earning bachelor's degrees from Columbia University 
and Balliol College, Oxford University. He is the author of numerous books, most recently one entitled No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. A contributing editor to the New Republic and a member of the editorial boards of dissent and of democracy, Professor Valence lectures frequently. He has written some 300 articles, reviews, and op-ed pieces for publications such as the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. Batting cleanup will be Professor Lucas Morell. He is the John K. Boardman Jr. Professor of Politics at Washington and Lee University. He also teaches American history and government at Ashland University in Ohio, summer programs for the Claremont Institute, and high school teacher workshops sponsored by the John M. Ashbrook Center, the Gilbert, excuse me, Gilbert Lehrman Institute, and the Liberty Fund. He is a trustee of the Supreme Court Historical Society, former president of the Abraham Lincoln Institute, and was a member of the Scholarly Board of Advisors for the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission. He is the author of the recently published book, Lincoln and the American Founding. Now, to help frame the discussion, I will play the devil's advocate. I will argue that the Constitution protected the right of slaveholding states to create that peculiar and evil institution through law. Each of our speakers will then be able to say why I am wrong. With that, let me make the case. I'll do it in two ways. First, I will start by making the argument in a manner that would be well known to lawyers today. And then second, I will make the argument in a way that would be most persuasive to people in the 18th and 19th century. If you start with it, looking at today's perspective, you start with the text of the Constitution. And the most obvious point is there is no 13th Amendment in the original Constitution. Now, that omission is significant. It perhaps is the dog that did not bark because the framers knew how to ban certain practices or types of legislation that they found undesirable. Congress cannot pass bills of attainder, ex post facto laws, export taxes, port preferences for some cities over others, or titles of nobility. States cannot pass bills of attainder or ex post facto laws, treaties with foreign nations, legislation coining money, laws impairing the obligation of contracts, and titles of nobility. So Congress knew how to go out of its way to make sure that in our nation's founding document, it prohibited various types of legislation that it did not want to see either the federal or state governments adopt. Beyond that, there are four clauses in the Constitution that arguably protect slave owners' interests. The three-fifths clause, about which I will say more later. The slave trade clause, which prohibited Congress from outlawing the slave trade until a date in the future. The militia clause, which allowed the president to call out the militia to deal with insurrections. And the fugitive slave clause, which required each state to return slaves who had escaped to the state of their origin. Now the history behind the text supports the evident conclusion of its text itself. The Declaration of Independence said that all men are created equal. But at the time, no state outlawed slavery, and the Declaration itself contained no such provision. The Articles of Confederation, which preceded the Constitution, also did not outlaw slavery. Now, early congressional legislation is also consistent with this. 
It distinguished between, quote, citizens of the United States, unquote, and, quote, persons of color, granting rights to the former to citizens that it would not necessarily grant to the latter. And finally, we come in that regard to the Supreme Court's decision in Dred Scott versus Sanford. In Dred Scott, the Supreme Court said that the state laws protecting against uh, the vi violation of contract rights that they were given over slaves could not be abolished by the Missouri Compromise. The effect was to not only declare the Missouri Compromise unconstitutional, but to ensure that the laws creating this institution in slaveholding states could not be undone by Congress. Now, it also created what has come to be known as the unenumerated rights doctrine, a doctrine that uh, has current contemporary uh, parlance in cases such as Roe versus Wade and Obergefell, but they're not the only ones. There are a series of other cases part of the unenumerated rights doctrine that are you know, very much uh, in favor of different people in society. For example, this, the Constitution, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, recognizes a right of parents to non-public school their children. The Constitution grants the state's 11th Amendment immunity, or rather constitutional immunity, in the courts of other states or from federal agencies. The anti-commandeering doctrine prohibits Congress from assigning responsibilities to state officers. And one of the, the, the most well-known principles of criminal justice that everyone's guilt must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt is also an example of this unenumerated rights doctrine. But that's how we would argue it today. If you go back to how you would argue it earlier, go back to the 18th century. What is critical in the 18th century is not whether courts can enforce constitutional rights. This is a pre-Marbury period and a pre, certainly a pre-Warren court and Burger court period. What was most important to the Republic then was the ability to elect legislators because the legislative process was seen as the primary uh, threat to individual rights. Well, guess what? The three-fifths clause that I mentioned earlier enhanced the population basis that slaveholding states would have by allowing them to count three-fifths of every slave they held as a person towards the number of representatives that they would have in the House of Representatives. You add that to the equal representation that each state had in the Senate, what you wind up with is a political process that is biased towards the Southern states, all of which had slavery at this time. So with that being said, having made the case uh, appropriately, I hope, in the way that it would be made today, as well as the way it would have been made in the 18th and early 19th centuries, I now turn everything over to our speakers. Our first speaker will be Timothy Sandifer, and he can explain to you why I am just flat wrong. Timothy, the ball's in your court. Thanks so much, Paul. Um, well, I, I, since you and I are both lawyers, I'll approach this in a, uh, in a lawyerly argument in the way that the anti-slavery constitutional thinkers did. And I think I want to emphasize that this is an aspect of American history that has been unfortunately downplayed to the point that a lot of people, including law students, graduate from school unaware that there even was a tradition 
of pro-Constitution, anti-slavery thought in the years leading up to the Civil War. The most famous of these being Frederick Douglass, but he was certainly not the only one. People like John Quincy Adams or Charles Sumner or Salmon Chase were, to one degree or another, adherents to this pro-Constitution, anti-slavery view. And unfortunately, today's history distorts the record by emphasizing the Garrisonian abolitionists, which was the group of abolitionists who thought the Constitution was an evil pro-slavery document and therefore that it should be abolished. These people had very little influence on American political and legal development in the Civil War era. And I think it's a shame that the pro-Constitution anti-slavery thinkers like Douglas are, are left out in a lot of these discussions. So let me let me take uh, uh, Paul's argument and show why how an anti-slavery pro-constitutional thinker like Douglas would have answered that. The first one is whenever we interpret the Constitution, we have to start with basic rules of interpretation. And the, for the, for people like Douglas, there were two really important rules. The first one was only the text on the paper itself is the law when you're reading the Constitution not the subjective desires of the people who wrote the document. Instead, only the words of the Constitution are the law and are legally binding. The second rule is we should interpret the Constitution as pro-freedom whenever possible. This comes from an 1805 Supreme Court case called United States versus Fisher, where the Supreme Court said we, we, we have to interpret the Constitution as being pro-liberty unless there is a clear instruction from Congress or from the lawmaker saying otherwise. Lawyers call this a clear statement rule, and we use that kind of rule in interpreting the Constitution today. Okay, with those two rules of interpretation in mind, now we look at the Constitution. It starts out with these big words, we the people of the United States. Who are the people of the United States? The Constitution contains no definitions section, so to understand who the people of the United States are, we refer back to the Declaration of Independence, which sets forth who the people of the United States are. The people of the United States are the same one people that dissolved their political bands with the, uh, Great Britain in the Declaration. But the one people is referred to as, as one people, not divided up by color. There's no reference to color lines in the, you know, either the Declaration or the Constitution. So we have no legal reason to believe that black Americans are not part of the people of the United States. And the Constitution draws no such line. And if that's the case, then why should we think that the Constitution is only intended for white Americans? We have no reason to believe that. In fact, the word slave and the word slavery does not appear anywhere in the Constitution of 1787. It's never mentioned. And that's pretty remarkable. After all, if the Constitution is supposed to protect slavery, you'd think it would at least mention that, right? So what Douglas says is that reading the Constitution and saying that it's pro-slavery is like reading uh, is like claiming to own property according to a deed. And then when you look at the deed, it doesn't have any reference to the property on the piece of paper. That would be a pretty weird kind of argument to make. In other words, the burden of proof is now on the pro-slavery side to prove that the Constitution is pro-slavery and they really can't do it. There's no federal guarantee of slavery. There's no limit on express limit on Congress banning or limiting it. And of course, the provision regarding the Western territories says that Congress has power to legislate however it wants with regard to the Western territories, which, of course, was the real issue that started, sparked the Civil War. What about the four provisions that Paul mentioned that refer to slavery in one oblique way or another? 
Again, they don't use the word slavery, but they, there's the three-fifths clause, there's the few, what we call the fugitive slave clause, and there's the rule about importation and exportation of slaves. Douglas's answer to that was this. The three-fifths clause doesn't protect slavery. It recognizes that slavery did exist at the time, but it doesn't guarantee it. In fact, it rewards states that abolish slavery by giving them more representation in Congress. The Fugitive Slave Clause does not refer to slaves. It says persons from whom labor is due, but labor is not due from slaves. They're the victims of injustice who have, ex have not been given due process of law. So labor can't be due from them. Labor is due from apprentices or indentured servants. And it is true that runaway apprentices and runaway indentured servants was a serious legal problem in the 19th century. And then about the Importation Clause, in fact, the Importation Clause did allow Congress to ban slavery in 1808 which it promptly did in 1808. So these provisions, although they obviously they refer to slavery, do not protect slavery. And this is an important point. The anti-slavery constitutional thinkers did not say that the Constitution banned slavery. Obviously, it did not. They said three things. They said, first, it provides no guarantee of slavery at the federal level. Second, it allows Congress, if it chose to do so, to limit or even eliminate slavery. And third, it allow, or it, it, its provisions, its other provisions, are in the long run inconsistent with slavery. And that's things like the due process clause. If black Americans are persons, then the Constitution says they can't be deprived of liberty without due process of law. That's obviously inconsistent with slavery. What about the bill of attainder clause? Slavery is a kind of bill of attainder, and yet the Constitution prohibits bills of attainder. The Constitution prohibits the seizure of persons without legitimate lawful authority. Obviously, slavery was inconsistent with that. And the most important was the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which said that people who are Americans cannot be deprived of their rights when they travel from state to state. And the problem with this was that black people could be citizens in some states, such as Massachusetts, and then travel to a place like South Carolina and be deprived of their liberty in violation of the federal guarantee. So those are the three principles of anti-slavery constitution, that the constitution does not guarantee slavery, that it allows the federal government to limit or abolish it, and that there are other provisions of the constitution that in the long term will prove inconsistent with slavery. I'd like to finish with one reference, which is uh, Paul said that this was a pre-Marbury world so that the question wasn't whether courts could enforce individual rights. That's really not true. At common law, of course, courts protected individual rights all the time. Under the British Constitution, uh, British courts protected individual rights without any written Bill of Rights at all. So the idea that courts could, could protect individual rights was a well-respected and well-recognized principle at the time. And that's why a lot of anti-slavery constitutional thinkers went to court to make their argument. Timothy, thank you very much. Having, having heard from the lawyer on our panel, we are now going to move to the historians. The first person who will speak is Professor Guelzo. Professor, you're at bat. Thank you, Paul. I want to look at the question of the pro-slavery constitution from the point of view of the slaveholders, which is not often a point of view considered in many of these discussions. And there discover that they too did not believe in a pro-slavery constitution. It was one of the primary arguments that slaveholders used in the secession winter of 1860 to justify the secession of the slave states 
that their northern free state brethren had somehow reneged on the guarantees of the Constitution, which they said otherwise protected the slave states and their ownership of slaves. Uh, Louisiana's Judah P. Benjamin, in his departing speech to the Senate, insisted that under a just and fair interpretation of the federal Constitution, it was impossible to deny that our slaves, which directly and indirectly involve a value of more than $4,000 million, are property and entitled to protection in territories owned by the common government. Still, even though the Constitution heads you off at every step in this quixotic attempt, the North was persistent in its threat to slavery, and secession was the only cure. This sense that the Constitution was a rampart that sheltered slave owning had a long history, stretching back at least as far as the ratification process in 1788. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, assured his fellow South Carolinians that the new constitution, which he had helped write in Philadelphia, provided a security that the general government can never emancipate slaves because no such authority is granted. To the contrary, Pinckney explained, we have secured an unlimited importation of Negroes for 20 years, nor is it declared that the importation shall be then stopped, it may be continued, we have obtained a right to recover our slaves in whatever part of America they may take refuge, which is a right we had not before. In short, considering all circumstances, we have made the best terms for the security of this species of property. 19th century abolitionists, for their part, uh, took Pinckney at his word. Frederick Douglass, as Angela has mentioned, and Professor Sandifer has mentioned, argued in 1849 that from the three-fifths clause to the insurrection clause, the Constitution not only consented to form bulwarks around the system of slavery with all its bloody enormities to prevent the slave from escape, but has planted its uncounted feet and tremendous weight on the heaving hearts of American bondmen to prevent them from rising to gain their freedom. And, Several important modern historians of slavery have argued forcibly that Douglas and Pinckney were right. Slavery would be protected by several interlocking provisions in the Constitution, writes David Waldstriker, so that in growing their government, the framers and their constituents created fundamental laws that sustained human bondage. Still, there was no absolute agreement on construing the Constitution as a pro-slavery document. As Michael Conlon has shown, the Three-Fifths Clause gave slavery less heft in national affairs than it might have seemed, since Northern electors in the Electoral College still enjoyed a 53 to 47 percent edge as early as 1796, percentages which continued to swing against the South so that by 1860, northern electors enjoyed a 60 to 40 superiority. And anti-slavery northerners, from Salmon Chase to Abraham Lincoln, argued that the Constitution, in fact, gave no national sanction to slavery. Even Frederick Douglass, in that famous comment from 1852, swung over to the view that 
interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Three words he put in caps. What has been almost entirely missed in the debate over the Constitution and slavery is the degree to which Southern slave owners themselves, when they are only talking to themselves, turn out to agree with Lincoln and Chase and Douglas and admit that the Constitution is a bruised reed for slavery to lean upon. Ironically, the slave owners' doubts actually begin with Pinckney. His attempt to convince the South Carolina Ratification Convention that slavery was sheltered by the Constitution was done in the face of anti-federalist slave owners who doubted that the Constitution did any such thing. Your delegates had to contend with the religious and political prejudices of the eastern and middle states, Pinckney pleaded. And they should realize that the deal that, they, that was made in Philadelphia was the best it was in our power to make. We would have made better if we could. Slave owners' constitutional peace of mind did not improve with time. In the midst of the agitation over the Compromise of 1850, J.A.C., initials which might have meant John A. Cleveland, a Charleston slave owner, took to the pages of the Southern Quarterly Review to warn that Southerners had made a grave mistake if they imagined that the clause of the Constitution, which allows a representation for the slave population, would withstand six months' agitation in the northern states. The Constitution was a parchment idol, and Southern people should not be deceived to the conclusion that the Constitution is the basis of a union of equal states. It was, in fact, the article of a trading partnership, a partnership which could not be relied upon to protect them. A year later, the review was even more pessimistic. No legal assurances of future security are to be found in the Constitution for slavery, it concluded. Debose's review was just as pessimistic. Writing for Debose in 1855, the Louisiana planter John J. Perkins claimed that the Constitution lacked the strength to resist bending into an anti-slavery shape. The compens and condensed commentaries upon the Constitution prepared for schools and businessmen all gloss over and misrepresent in a manner calculated to deceive the rights of the slaveholder under the Constitution, while they enlarge and artfully magnify by every possible construction the degree of power given to the federal government over the subject. When slave owners were candid, they could explain quite clearly why the Constitution gave them no confidence. Edmund Ruffin, Virginia's arch secessionist, frankly admitted that the forms or letter of the Constitution may be used to destroy slavery. In fact, claimed Ruffin, without the need for infringing the letter of a single article of the Constitution, the Southern states, their institutions, property, and all that is dear to them will be at the mercy of their fanatical and determined enemies. Negro slavery may be thus abolished, either directly or indirectly, gradually or immediately. Oddly, the most obvious concession of the Constitution's weakness on slavery was hidden in plain sight, in Chief Justice Roger Tawney's infamous majority opinion in Dred Scott v. Sanford in 1857. 
It was precisely because the Constitution had resisted any suggestion that there could be property in men that Tawney had to rush in, in an act of raw judicial reinterpretation, to deny any recognition of due process or privileges and immunities for African Americans, free or otherwise. The ultimate proof, however, of the slave owner's real lack of faith in the Constitution was how, the moment they lost political control of the constitutional processes with the election of Lincoln, the slave owners immediately tossed the Constitution aside, attempted to secede from the Union, and wrote a new Constitution, which this time they believed would secure to them what the old one had not. It would give them a very different Constitution than the old one, looking forward, as James Stoner has written, to something more closely approximating a British parliamentary system. But that is, after all, the point. The slave owners' actions often speak louder than their words, and their actions were an admission that the old Constitution was not their tool, much less their friend. Professor, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to learn about this from the perspective, as you put it, that we often don't hear from. We now will turn to Professor Sean Wilentz. Professor, you're at that now. Well, thank you so much, Paul, and uh, thank you for having me coming from the other shore. But here I am, and I'm really happy to be joining in this particular discussion, especially. Um, you know, much has been said that I was going to say as well. I, I, I heartily endorse, especially Timothy's uh, remarks at the very beginning of his talk about the importance of anti-slavery constitutionalism. This is a line of thought that everybody knew about in the middle of the 19th century that seems to be plowed under. And I hope that all of you out there will uh, take some time to think about that and learn more about that strain of thought uh, regarding the Constitution. I'd like to take us back to 1787. Having been taken up to the Civil War, I'd like to take us back to 1787. First, to clarify something that comes up a lot, and that is simply, why didn't the framers abolish slavery? There was no chance whatsoever that the framers were going to abolish slavery in 1787, and it wasn't because they were bad people, and it's not because they were the southern slaveholders somehow cowed um, the, the northerners into submission. There were at least three very good reasons for this. One has to do with property, which you know, the Constitution was uh, framed in, in part to, um, uh, to protect. For all the things that they did do about coinage and contracts that Paul mentioned earlier on, the, the federal government was not going to be established in a way that could mess around with the property laws of the established states, southern states any more than northern states. They just weren't going to do that. Um, secondly, in 1787, eight of the 13 states still had slavery. Were still Slavery was still fully um, you know, an institution that was there. You're not going to allow the government to, uh, federal government, to get rid of slavery with eight of the states having slaveholders who would just reject it. I mean, the chances of ratification would have been impossible. Third and perhaps most important is that slavery was anti-slavery. Anti-slavery was a very new thing in the world in 1787. Before the revolution, John Jay, the, the great federalist, makes this point. Before the revolution, there was hardly any opposition to slavery among whites in America, other than um, among some Quakers. It was the revolution itself which led to the creation of an extraordinary 
anti-slavery sentiment, um, which created actually the very first um, noticeable, it was somewhat ramshackle, but still there and, and, and loud um, anti-slavery movement anywhere in the Atlantic world. So the idea that uh, anti-slavery was going to, and anti-slavery had some great successes before 1787 in the northern states, but the idea that this fairly recent uh, movement was going to be able to abolish slavery in, in the nation by fiat in 1787, um, this is giving the anti-slavery movement far more power than it possibly could have had. Now, but let's go back to 1787 then knowing that there's not going to be um, a chance for the Constitution to eliminate slavery or give the federal government the power to abolish slavery willy-nilly. Let's go back to that anti-slavery sentiment. It's Everybody knows that there were lots of slaveholders at the federal convention. What never gets talked about or rarely gets talked about is that there were a lot of avowed anti-slavery delegates at that convention, including the president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, Benjamin Franklin. These delegates knew very well what was going to happen in the, in the convention, and they were going to do their best to try and make sure that slavery, the slaveholders were not going to put anything over on them or make slavery, enshrine slavery as a national institution. The key, the key issue for them was the Atlantic slave trade. The Atlantic slave trade, without which most people at the time believed, without which um, the, the, the slavery could no longer, would no longer exist. Um, that it would le at least uh, uh, lead to the abolition of slavery. Every major emancipation uh, uh, proposal up to that point had the ending of the Atlantic slave trade as the uh, first step. Well, these anti-slavery delegates came to Philadelphia prepared to try and make sure that the new government would have the power, not simply to regulate the Atlantic slave trade, but to abolish it. The anti-slave, the abolitionists outside of, of Congress, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, they start organizing about this. Franklin is actually given a petition by one of his uh, fellow abolitionists to present to the, to the convention. He looks at it, he decides it's a little too radical, so he puts it aside. But they knew what they were going to be up against. And indeed, the Southern delegates actually managed to get through a draft constitution, which would have given the, the federal government, the new federal government, no power whatsoever over the Atlantic slave trade. Well, the anti-slavery delegates, mo mostly a man named Governor Morris, um, uh, Franklin kept quiet because he was kind of known what he was going to be saying if he, if he ever spoke up. Um, they tore that um, early draft constitution to shreds. And they managed to get the federal government's power, authority to um, abolish the Atlantic slave trade. It's true that uh, through some careful bargaining, uh, or crafty bargaining rather, um, the, the lower Southern delegates, including Charles Coatsworth Pinckney that uh, Alan mentioned, whom Alan mentioned, they managed to get an extension of the slave trade for a while. But this was the first major blow against the Atlantic slave trade in the name of a national government anywhere in the Atlantic world. So to this extent, the anti-slavery delegates actually succeeded beyond what anything what the uh, the slaveholders would have desired. Now, there were compromises to be sure. Um, there were concessions, I think perhaps more concessions than um, 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 some of my colleagues might might want to uh, admit to. Three-fifths clause, I think, is a little trickier, although the three-fifths clause, I would say, had very, very little to do with the spread of slavery. And the three-fifths clause was there. It was a concession. It was real. But its practical effect has been vastly overestimated. 
Okay, but let me get to the, the, the basic point that I wanted to make, if I have enough time. And that had to do with the struggle over the concept that Alan mentioned of property in man. At the state level in the North, when there were fights about Northern emancipation, um, at the key, the key pro-slavery argument was that they, they, were, they had their vested um, interest in property, uh, vested property interest in slavery, and that no one could get rid of that. No government could take that away from them. Well, the anti-slavery argument was very simple. Property in man is simply illegitimate. Property rights is a bogus argument in this case because simply you cannot own property in man it is both um, a sin against god and it's just, and it's a violation of natural rights okay the anti-slavery majority coming to the convention were absolutely determined to keep the idea of property in man out of the na out of national law and they succeeded in doing so you can look through the notes that madison took of the of the debates and see very very clearly that while the, the, the Constitution would tolerate slavery where it already existed, it would not recognize the institution in national law. That's why all of those crazy, you know, circumlocutions, you know, persons held to, held to labor or service or, you know, persons not, you know, the fact that slavery is not in the Constitution is not, as some argue, a matter of the, uh, the framers trying to shamefully hide the fact that they hardwired a pro-slavery Constitution. Not at all. This was a, um, you know, a decision that was taken not out of cowardice, but out of conviction. The, 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 it did not guarantee by any means that slavery would be ended anytime soon. As Paul said, I think earlier on, it was really left, they really left the decision up to the future. The politics would decide that. And for a long time, um, the slaveholders and their northern allies had enough power in the Congress to make sure that slavery wouldn't be interfered with. But that began to change, it began to change during the Missouri crisis in 1820 or so. After that, it became clear that the framers had left the, the national government enormous powers, not to abolish slavery directly, but to check its growth, to hamper it, to hinder it, and to put it, as Abraham Lincoln would later remark, in course of ultimate extinction. Once the anti-slavery side in the North had the control of Congress, that's precisely what they went about doing. And as Alan remarked, it was that pressure with the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860 that led the slaveholders to secede. The writing was on the wall. But the Republican Party could only have existed and the um, anti-slavery cause could only have attained national power because of what the framers did in 1787 by keeping property and man out of the Constitution. That doesn't make the, uh, the, the Constitution an anti-slavery document. The framers were not sitting around saying, well, you know, in 1809, this man Lincoln's gonna be born and everything's gonna work out. No, it could have worked out very, very differently. But it worked out the way that it did in no small measure because, or largely because of what the framers did in 1787. To that extent, the anti-slavery elements in the Constitution, which the um, anti-slavery constitutionalists would develop over the next 30, 40, 50, 70 years was absolutely crucial to understanding of the Constitution. Professor, thank you very much. We're now going to move on to the cleanup bidder, Professor Lucas Morrell. Lucas, it's your chance. Thank you. 
The great conundrum of the 21st century Americans looking back to the founding is squaring their many statements affirming human equality and natural rights and condemning slavery while they continued the practice of slavery. Many today simply see this as rank hypocrisy and unwittingly find themselves agreeing with Chief Justice Roger Taney and Stephen Douglas, who concluded that the founding generation could not have meant all when they said all men are created equal because they did not immediately free all American slaves. Therefore, in the words of Douglas, this government of ours was founded and wisely founded upon the white basis. It was made by white men for the benefit of white men and their posterity to be executed and managed by white men. How could Lincoln not draw the same conclusion? When Lincoln looked back to the founders for guidance on how to deal with the growing crisis over slavery, he wasn't the only one who appealed to the fathers. Stephen Douglas was the leading Democrat in the 1850s, and he claimed that he knew better than Lincoln what our revolutionary fathers thought about the question of slavery. Douglas cited the founders by name, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, Madison, Hamilton, Jay, and the great men of that day made this government divided into free states and slave states and left each state perfectly free to do as it pleased on the subject of slavery. Why can it not exist on the same principles on which our fathers made it? Douglas claimed his policy aligned more closely with the founders' hopes for the new republic. In Lincoln's mind, the future of freedom and the eventual demise of slavery depended on whose interpretation of the founders was correct. Lincoln did not believe that the Constitution was designed to protect slavery per se, and certainly did not agree with the 1857 Dred Scott opinion by Chief Justice Roger Taney. He didn't think that that was correct in stating that the right of property in a slave is distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. Lincoln argued during his 1858 debates with Douglas, quote, that the right of property in a slave is not distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. And Judge Douglas thinks it is. Lincoln did not believe the founders were hypocrites, generally speaking. As he put it, we had slavery among us. We could not get our Constitution until, unless we permitted them to remain in slavery. We could not secure the good we did secure if we grasped for more. Having by necessity submitted to that much, it does not destroy the principle that is the charter of our liberties. He thought the founders did not think they could free themselves and free their slaves at the same time. As Harvey Mansfield recently put it, the American founding couldn't be perfect from the start. It had to progress towards its goal. Put simply, the founding generation of Americans did not believe that they could both free themselves and free their slaves without hazarding the success of both their independence and their new way of governing themselves. However, once they had secured their independence, what did they do collectively with regards to the state institution of slavery? Did their federal constitution indicate a desire to strengthen slavery's hold on the American people? Or did the framers attempt to reduce their dependence upon the peculiar institution? Lincoln answered by observing that the U.S. Constitution, unlike the Articles of Confederation, empowered Congress to ban the importation of slaves in 1808. A constitutional provision was necessary to prevent the people through Congress, Lincoln noted, 
from putting a stop to the traffic immediately at the close of the war. Now, if slavery had been a good thing, would the fathers of the Republic have taken a step calculated to diminish its beneficent influences among themselves and snatch the boon wholly from their posterity? If the federal government did not possess the authority to abolish slavery where it existed in the states, then the founders attempted to begin its abolition by preventing its continued supply. It was believed at the time that cutting off the supply would produce its eventual demise. In addition, under the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution of 1787, the Congress passed an ordinance banning slavery from the Northwest Territory, the only territory owned by the United States at that time. Taken together, these were early attempts at the national level to prevent both the supply and expansion of slavery on American soil. The expectation was that slavery would eventually wither on the vine and the nation would peacefully outlive the utility of slavery. Jefferson, Madison, and others feared a race war if emancipation occurred immediately and en masse. Of course, these actions and expectations all occurred prior to the invention of the cotton gin in 1793. Prior to the enormous profitability of plantation-grown cotton as an export and what then became the extraordinary productivity of slave labor in harvesting that cash crop. To be sure, South Carolina and Georgia were always resistant to national control over slavery in their states, and they exercised outsized power as a minority of the American states at the Constitutional Convention. Thus, to speak of the founders when it came to expectations regarding slavery over the long haul is to speak in general terms and not to affirm an opinion held by every significant political player in this tragic drama. This is what produced some of the debates at the convention and the eventual compromises over slavery in the Constitution. But Madison expected that these would lead to the, the demise of slavery over time. In his House Divided speech, Lincoln predicted Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the, public, uh, where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. Those were the stakes in 1858, and Lincoln tried to show white northerners that the key to preventing the spread of slavery was interpreting the Constitution as empowering Congress to ban slavery in the territories. This was contrary to Taney's ruling in Dred Scott, but Lincoln believed the Constitution belonged to the American people, and if they disagreed with the Supreme Court, they could work politically to get the court to reconsider its ruling. In fact, as president, Lincoln would sign into law a, ba a ban against slavery in the District of Columbia, and two months later, a ban against slavery in all the territories, even with the Dred Scott ruling still on the books. The 13th Amendment made the constitutional conflict moot, but Lincoln and the Republicans believed an anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution was worth the political challenge. Professor, thank you very much. I would now like the remaining members of the panel to join us. 
And I want to ask if anyone has uh, any comment that he would like to offer based on the remarks of the people who spoke after. So that would be Timothy, Alan, and Sean. Uh, let me go in reverse order. Sean, do you have anything to that you would like to I add to what uh, Morel well, said? I can, well, I can say is ditto. I mean, I, 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 Lucas gave a very lucid um, account of how Lincoln in particular understood the question. So. Um, Okay, Alan, or uh, anything you would like to add? I'm always impressed by the obduracy of the Southern delegates in the Constitutional Convention. And when I say the Southern delegates, I'm really talking about South Carolina and Georgia. Right. Um, their obduracy on the subject of slavery. They folded their arms and said, we will not be part of a union that does not allow us to continue with slavery or continue to import slaves for at least some period. And on that, they were they were prepared to see things break up. And there really was a serious threat that the union might, in fact, break up. I mean, we think there's a natural progression because we're looking at this from our perspective. We think there's this natural progression from the Continental Congress to the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution. And it was just seamless and it was going to happen anyway. It's not necessarily the case. There are many people who fully expected that even in the last moments of the Articles of Confederation, that the entire uh, federal union would uh, break up into a variety of small confederacies. And if that had happened, the results probably would not in the long term have been pretty. Um, those Southerners fought hard for that. So in many respects, they were going to demand that as a concession. And in order to get a constitution and to keep the union together, Northerners are going to have incentives to say, all right, well, we'll, we'll make these allowances. But watch how, they, watch how they make those allowances. Roger Sherman... Oliver Ellsworth, when this question is pushed on them uh, in August, in the, uh, the debates in mm -hmm. August of 1787, what they're saying is, all right, well, we're not going to push on the issue about slavery or the slave trade because slavery is going away anyhow. Right? Sherman says slavery is going to disappear in a few years. Ellsworth says slavery is on its way out. In a few years, there's not going to be any trace whatsoever that there was such a thing as slavery in America. So let's not kick the sleeping dog. Uh, let's move ahead because the Constitution that we're making and the union that we're creating is going to point us in an anti-slavery, uh, towards an anti-slavery conclusion eventually. And the, looking at what they have to say, you really have to put the question in terms of, shall we have a union or are we going to let the slave owners break the whole thing to pieces? Especially when the slavery issue was, as many people thought then, it was going to, it was going to disappear anyhow. So you set up the Constitution so that it accommodates that disappearance, and you sit back and you wait for it to happen, which it didn't do. But that was for reasons that were beyond the power of the Constitutional Convention to understand. They were not, after all, prophets with crystal balls. They could not see what was going to happen in the next 20, 30 years in the, the economy of the United States. Paul, could, could, I, could I register a, a, a slight amendment to my colleagues' remarks about Certainly. This? Go right ahead. Obduracy, which is that's true. They bullied, they yelled, Pinckney, all the rest of them. But, but they lost. Yeah. They lost on the slave trade, and they had said, "This is a deal breaker. We're out of here." And then, boop, 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 you know, they don't leave. 
So I think that one of the things we have to deal with is not simply the fact of anti-slavery at constitutionalism at the convention, but their power. They were strong and they made, they made the, um, the Southerners eat crow more than once. I think interesting to look at, too, is the terms on which they demanded the continuation of the slave trade. They're willing to talk about 20 years because in large measure, and this, this is an explanation that surfaces in the ratification uh, convention in South Carolina. What they're looking to look at, what they're looking for is basically to make up the slave population they have lost to British occupation. And the argument that is often, I mean, David Ramsey makes this argument that what we're looking at, you know, South Carolina is full of waste places. We need, uh, we need cheap labor in order to make them productive. So we need to replenish the supply. And when that supply is replenished, then we'll be content. Well, when that supply was replenished, they weren't entirely content. And you can can doubt some of the sincerity there, but that's the argument that is made. What we're looking at is something provisional. What we're looking at is something temporary because we don't, our state economy is gonna go into the tank. And if it does, then that's gonna create an imbalance of power in this new constitutional arrangement. Let me throw out a question from the audience to the, the panel members. Um, what effect, if any, did the abolition movement early in the nation's history uh, have on the slavery practice in other nations? Well, one quick answer is that the anti-slavery movement in America inspired the, the abolition movement in Britain. I mean, the British often given credit, sometimes are, are said to have, um, you know, forced American uh, independence because they were threatening to abolish slavery by 1776. This is nonsense. This is nonsense. So I think the first step is to see that the Americans were not only the first, but they had, they really did inspire people like Granville Sharp, a great British abolitionist. He, he credits the Americans with having gotten him to understand the centrality of the slave trade and of slavery to, the, to, 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 to what he was up against. Um, so in that sense, I think that the American uh, abolitionist movement not only is the first, but is really a beacon to the rest of the world. It takes hold first in Britain for obvious reasons. Although I, you know, I would agree with that, but I, I, it would also be worth emphasizing that then that had an effect on the United States and particularly on Frederick Douglass and the anti-slavery constitution. You, you know, the anti-slavery thinking in, in the 1830s with Garrison is constitution's evil, we need to destroy it because it's pro-slavery. Douglas goes to Europe after publishing the first version of his memoirs, and he meets with a lot of anti-slavery thinkers who had made a lot of progress through the political process. And that gets him to thinking, well, maybe we, we in America can also make progress through politics. And he comes back to the United States and embraces pro-constitution anti-slavery thinking, largely, I think, as a result of that, of that meeting. So it, it is a dynamic process that, that it, you could say it helped transform anti-slavery thinking in the United States from being revolutionary to being political. A lot of the time we tend to think of the abolition movement only in terms of what is going on in the United States or what is going on in Great Britain. We do not pay sufficient attention to the degree to which the two movements interpenetrated each other, that the personnel that were involved in both, the publications that were involved in both, saw themselves as part of a single Atlantic movement. So that you have 
constant movement of individuals back and forth between the United States and Great Britain, uh, constant movement of publications, constant attendance at various anti-slavery conventions, and it's Americans and Brits who are working hand in glove this way. They see themselves as part of a single movement uh, heading forward. So the contribution that is made that way is significant, but it's because from the very start, anti-slavery people see themselves as part of a united movement that is going to touch not only slavery in the United States, it's going to touch slavery in the British West Indies, uh, where it was still deeply entrenched up until the 1830s, and even beyond that. Let me ask another audience question. I'd like uh, panelists to discuss the significance of the ban on slavery in the Northwest Ordinance. To what extent, for example, is that Exhibit A uh, as uh, can be offered in uh, defense of the argument that the Constitution did not protect slavery. Because if it did, then the entire Northwest Ordinance, one of the earliest pieces of legis the nation's legislation, was unconstitutional from the outset. So please, what, ex what was the significance of the ban on slavery in the uh, Northwest Ordinance? Professor well, Morell, why don't you take a well, shot? Certainly, certainly Lincoln thought that was, that was Exhibit A, because in the Cooper Institute speech in February of 1860, he makes it Exhibit A, that the Northwest Ordinance, something which is uh, in its first form adopted by the Confederation Congress and then is readopted in 1787, I mean, it contains this explicit ban on slavery in the, in the, the, the territories that are organized uh, north of the Ohio River, and the wording of uh, Section 6 of the Northwest Ordinance, in fact, becomes the model that is used for the wording of the 13th Amendment, just picks it up and copies it completely. So right. people people very widely understood the Northwest Ordinance that way to be an anti-slavery statement. Now, bear in mind that that provision was not uniformly applied in the organization of those territories. There was a lot of unevenness. There was a number of exceptions. There were a number of lacunae in that, so that it, it, it looks more like a rumpled blanket than a simple uh, sheet that eliminates slavery completely. And yet it was an extraordinary statement in its own right, put into national law governing the future of these territories, which have uh, fallen into uh, the hands of United States administration as a result of the Treaty of Paris. Yeah, I would just Professor add Morell, that, yes, I would just add that Lincoln liked that example and quoted it often precisely to show that you can't have an anti-slavery constitution without an anti-slavery people. And so for him, it, it showed the impulse for freedom which is an impulse against slavery. So you can't get rid of slavery as they thought at the time immediately. This was the number one way to prevent it from continuing to entrench itself on American soil. Um, keep it from expanding and then as early as possible, which turned out to be January 1st, 1808, Jefferson signed it into law the previous year uh, banning the importation of slaves, and the hope was that slavery would die on the vine. I really, I really love that that line. You can't have an anti-slavery constitution without an anti-slavery people. That really is what this entire issue boils down to, I think. And what Douglas and, and Lincoln would have pointed to to demonstrate that America was intended 
to be a place of an anti-slavery people was the Declaration of Independence. And you're talking about the, the, the Northwest Ordinance, that's one of the, uh, of the organic laws of the United States, but another one of the organic laws of the United States is the Declaration. And the issue that the anti-slavery constitutionalists insisted upon was on the legal significance, not just as a rhetorical or political document, but the legal significance of the Constitution of the United States, which appears in the United States Code at one, volume one, page one of the U.S. Code, and is a law. And the reason this comes up is, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Lark and I, before this all started, we were talking about this book, uh, uh, the the uh, Mark Graber book, that, that uh, Dred Scott and the Problem of Constitutional Evil. And this is, this is a perfect example of what we're talking about. It says here, uh, he says, um, whether the persons responsible for the Constitution thought constitutional protections for property encompassed property in human beings is unclear. Both pro-anti-slavery are plausible interpretations of the Constitution. And then on page 86, he says, what Americans needed and what constitutional law had no capacity to provide was the political consensus necessary for a decisive choice to be made between those two. Well, Lincoln would have said, we have that decisive choice. It's the Declaration of Independence. That is the deciding factor in this argument. And yet it's not mentioned, not really discussed in any detail in, in Graeber's book. And, and that's really why this issue is about when Lincoln says in the in the Gettysburg Address, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Today's argument about the 1619 Project and all this sort of thing is an argument about what proposition America is dedicated to. If we are not dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal in a legal sense as well as a political and rhetorical and, and spiritual sense, then what is it that we are dedicated to? That's what this discussion is really about. Um, Sean, I, that's, a, that's an excellent point. I, I, I hesitate to say any more. Just very, very quickly, though, as a historian, the um, Northwest Ordinance and the Constitutional Convention, are, are, the Confederation Congress passes the Northwest Ordinance while the convention is meeting in Philadelphia. So, and there's a certain, some actually are members of both bodies. Um, <laughs> arguments often made, well, that, that slavery was somehow enshrined in the Constitution. My view is that by keeping property man out, in fact, the, the, what the convention does is to enshrine the Northwest Ordinance in national law, and to and, and and including the fugitive slave clause, by the way, which is also part of the of the of the Northwest Ordinance. But I think they're much more consciously doing that than putting slavery into the Constitution. And well, that leads to uh, another curious in this respect that uh, when we talk about uh, the phrase "property in man" or "property in men," that of course is is James Madison's phrase. It's often done though, and that's the title of Sean's book, which is a I, I, I cannot recommend too highly as tracing the development and growth of this this anti-slavery consensus about interpreting the Constitution. It's terrific that way. But it's not only Madison. I mean, Sherman, Roger Sherman also. It's very almost literally the same words. We cannot be writing a Constitution that endorses the idea of property and men. So the fundamental tenet of slavery itself, that human beings could be chattel property, is something which the designers of the Constitution make it very clear, has no place in the Constitution, no place in the organic law of the United States. And that is what leads ineluctably to what you have with the Northwest Ordinance, uh, it leads to the banning of the slave trade. Because if there could be property in men, why are you, why, why is there this possibility of banning trade in what would otherwise have been considered property? That would have been a violation of provisions of the Constitution itself. 
Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you. Unfortunately, we're at time and we have to uh, end this now. But I want to tell the audience that each of the people who we have had speak today has published books and articles on these subjects, and they should have been sent to you when you signed up for this event. Thank you for joining us, and I hope that you will join us for the remaining events in this series. Uh, and you can click at www.heritage.org, PTC, and that will help you find them. With that, on behalf of the Heritage Foundation and myself, I want to thank each of the panelists. I could listen all afternoon, but I can't. Uh, but thank you very much for your time, your dedication, and your wisdom. And with that, we are signed off. Thank you very much.